I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Radio, coming to you live from WSCA's West End Studio on 909 Islington Street, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. True Tales Radio is a place for local people to share their true stories with our on-air listeners and our in-studio audience. We're not making it up. Um, And to come here and be a part of your local independent community radio station that we're so lucky to have here on the seacoast of New Hampshire. Tonight is actually our first show of 2015 since our January one was snowed out. Um, So we have a bit of a double theme going. Daring and taking risks is the major one, but we're also sneaking some folks in from the resolutions and fresh starts. So you'll hear stories on all of those, touching on all of those. Our underwriters for tonight's program are Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station in the Seacoast. And also Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups and True Tales Radio, and who wants to know, hey, what's your story? (laughs) So here is how our show will progress tonight. We uh, have seven people coming to share tonight, all local folks bringing us true stories from their lives and one poem. We limit everyone to 10 minutes for their telling. We have no rating system, no grading, no judgment. This is really about sharing our stories with each other and connecting. So, I am going to do a little bit of the announcement, not just the announcing today, but some um, introductions. Pat and I are sharing that tonight, as she has had a little voice issue. She needs to save her voice. It's a jaw issue. It's a jaw issue. Okay. It'll be a story for another time, I'm sure. (laughs) So, I'll start off here by introducing to you Craig Wirt. He is a Newmarket, New Hampshire-based singer-songwriter who has toured internationally for many years. Many, many years. Many years. Uh, He's very, very old. (laughs) Not that many years. So when he is home, he volunteers for hospice and pet therapy. His wife, Liz, is also a musician and a storyteller. We've heard Craig before here, and we are really glad to welcome him back for his story, Before Fear, A Great Adventure. I have to start out by saying that I was uh, I worked late last night on a recording project and I stopped in at a fast food restaurant and I was going to get a small snack and I got a small I asked for a small small hamburger the smallest thing she said anything else I said no she said would you like a free senior drink <laughs> oh, no. I, was, I was shocked oh, I, and I responded, sorry. why yes, dearie. <laughs> and so I got my free drink. <clears throat> I've, I've been on many adventures in my lifetime, um, mostly as a follower, I have to say. I'm, uh, but uh, I've seen some wild things, but I was dragged along, sometimes kicking and screaming, dragged along. 
Um, most of my self-selected uh, adventures have been taking the stage in front of people, sometimes really giant numbers of people, into the rough patch of land on the fringe of the park where nobody ever seemed to go. It was thick with sumac trees, those kind of red, fuzzy, tufted trees, and a lot of scrub brush and, and pines, big and small. And we pushed our way through the thickest parts of it until the sounds of play and the, those loud New York conversation voices, which were a bit more like yelling, uh, <laughs> were replaced by subtle sounds of the breeze going through the leaves of trees and mysterious chirps and flutters of birds that you couldn't see but, but were all around you. And now and then a dog cried out in the distance. But for us, it wasn't a dog, of course. It was probably a wolf. <laughs> and it actually was definitely a wolf. <laughs> we were quite sure of that after a bit. And it, it, it didn't take very long to feel that we were in another land altogether, to feel like we were pioneers and first-time-ever explorers of this strange land. Soon, after, after getting cut and scraped and whacking each other unintentionally with the branches that were pushing mm -hmm. forward, we came upon a secret creek that, that opened before us. Um, it had a steady, steady and slow current, but it's nothing we knew was anywhere in there. We were just ecstatic to find this secret creek that, of course, no one had ever found before <laughs> in the history of humanity. <laughs> it was eight feet across, about it's about a foot deep, and the shores were lined with debris that had been deposited by periods of greater flow through that area. No doubt, that's my adult brain saying that. <laughs> But then they just kind of mysteriously appeared <laughs> on the banks of this crazy little creek. And, uh, but our, our imaginations gave us superpower eyeballs, and we started to look at these things um, and see a pattern to them, to the debris. And we noticed that there were enough ingredients to build something. Two partially water-soaked logs, check. A fence post with a piece of rail attached, check. A broken two-by-six with nails sticking out of it. Oh, yes, check. <laughs> what else did we have? A six-foot length of half-rotted rope. Indeed. A one-foot-by-three-foot sheet of delaminating plywood. Perfect. <laughs> we put these things together, and you have, of course, a raft. With few words spoken aloud, construction was underway. It was quick work. It was really a matter of taking these pieces down and laying them on top and beside of each other in, in, a, in just the right order on the shoreline. And so we did. I think we spent about 20, 25 minutes doing that. Um, really not a lot of talk, just people going, oh, this goes here, this goes here, then nothing goes, <laughs> boom, boom, boom. And it was, you could just imagine the beauty of this craft. Um, we didn't hesitate to work. The bank was very muddy and our feet were sinking in and we were often crossing the creek for more scraps of potential flotation and decking. Uh, and a relatively clean black and red Ked sneakers quickly turned a universal walnut mustardy brown as we labored. When she was intact, and we'd each procured a long pushing stick for the journey, we dragged her to the center of the channel and held our beauty in place for a moment, just admiring that she was indeed floating on the surface of this massive body of water. <laughs> then on a careful count of three, and we had to be sure, well, are we going to on the three are we going, or is it after? We, 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 did, we made that because it had to be just so. Um, there were four of us distributed on the four corners of it. We all jumped aboard on the count of three. 
Now, despite our excellent materials and workmanship, <laughs> the SS adventurer rocketed to the creek bottom and held fast. I would say earlier, we were about a foot of water. <laughs> Most of our stuff was water soaked, <laughs> barely, barely holding itself up. Clearly, this would not be a four-man voyage. So, I don't remember much discussion about it, but I know one, one generous soul, I think it was, was Billy Crone, uh, jumped off. So there were three, and there was no change in our, in our situation. Then, simultaneously, two more of the, of the rough-and-tumble crew left the deck leaving me, Craig, on board alone. Still, we sat, settled deep, <laughs> in the creek bottom. With our shoulders down, we stood in silence. And then, one corner of our, of our vessel lifted up to the surface of the water. And shortly after, and we were floating, we were, meaning this beautiful craft, the vessel and I, were, were half floating. So, and, um, which was exhilarating, I will tell you. And I scooched just a bit. You can't see out there, but the audience can see. I'm scooching right now. That's yeah. <laughs> and I rocked gently and persistently until all four corners freed and rose just barely above the surface of the water, with me standing on top of it. And we started to catch the current, the vessel and I. The amazing part of the story to me, personally, is this. Because without a speck of hesitation, I stayed on board this vessel, and I simply waved goodbye to my friends. <laughs> Without a word, these three brave deserters, <laughs> no, they, they were taking it for the team, but they waved back to me. And there wasn't a protest, there wasn't a question, there was no charted course or plan. <laughs> we built this thing out of stuff on the side of a creek. We got one of us on it, me, and it started floating away. And so I went. It's as if, we, as if we all silently understood that this was supposed to be. This was going to be, and it was so. And I was off to, I didn't, I had no idea where I was off to. I didn't care where I was off to. I was floating on a raft to somewhere, and I was free, and I was happy as can be. And with the rounding of the first bend in this S-shaped creek, my team was out of sight. All four corners of, of, of the craft floated high, or at least high enough, to keep moving forward. I snaked through dense trees slowly, hanging up for a second or two here and there, and shifting my weight to get unstuck and carry on with the mission, whatever the mission was. <laughs> it was a mission of being alive, I think. And I can't tell you if I was gone for five or seven hours on this mighty journey. In hindsight, I'm pretty sure it was for all of 12 minutes. <laughs> Before the water level shrank to three inches. 
and my raft transformed into a permanently fixed platform. I jumped off her, and I pushed my way through the gauntlet of brush and branches to emerge from the thicket about 50 feet from where we'd gone in the first place. My mates were already back with their families, and I had a bit of explaining to do, but there was no spanking for this one. Um, my mom was famous for a it didn't hurt at all, but you had to pretend that it So you go, oh, oh, oh. And she said, she would always uh, punctuate each uh, each whap with a sneaker with a, don't you ever do that again. But um, this was not even worthy of the, of the wimpy sneakers. Uh, even for unauthorized water travel, I just got a disapproving look. Uh, I'm not sure how I became so much more cautious and even fearful as an adult. I think some of it is, is most definitely self-preservation. Some of it is warranted in a complex, responsibility-filled, and danger-filled world. And maybe it's perfectly sensible to be cautious and careful and maybe even afraid. But I do look back with a little envy at the boy who was afraid of nothing. We have Al. He is a recently retired and re resides in Lee, New Hampshire. His past career pursuits include being a French restaurateur, an adjunct faculty member at the University System of New Hampshire, and a counselor for returning veterans from World War II through Iraq and Afghanistan, helping them to manage and heal the emotional and spiritual wounds resulting from their war experiences. The story he'll tell us tonight begins when Al was on his way to Vietnam in 1969. His story is titled, Honolulu on Six Cents a Day. And here he comes. We're, we had a little technical issue, but now we're, we're back on track, right? Thank you. I'm going to tell you a, a war story of sorts tonight. And so before I begin, I'd like to quote Tim O'Brien from his excellent Vietnam memoir called The Things They Carried. And he had this to say about true war stories. A true war story is never moral. It does not instruct nor encourage virtue, nor suggest models of proper human behavior. If a story seems moral, do not believe it. Now here's my story. It's August 1969. And for the second time in four months, I'm on a plane headed to Vietnam. Unlike my first flight in early April of that year, this time I'm on a civilian flight out of San Francisco on the way to Honolulu, stop in Honolulu, refuel, and on to Vietnam. The earlier flight, four months before, with 165 other GIs, left McGuire Air Force Base on a Saturday morning, and we landed in Vietnam on Monday afternoon. The Sunday that I missed, I'm told due to crossing the international dateline, was Easter Sunday, and I took it as a bad omen that I'd missed the celebration of the resurrection. The next three months, I was in the jungles of South Vietnam as an infantry soldier. And as you might imagine, these were very frightening and dangerous times. But that's not the story that I want to share with you tonight. Due to some very unusual circumstances that will have to be a story for another time also, I was sent home after three months, those first three months in the jungle, for a 30-day leave, 
with the requirement that I would have to return to Vietnam at the end of that 30 days and complete my 12-month tour of duty. I'd like to tell you those 30 days were wonderful and great, but uh, that wasn't the case at all. It kind of went by in a, in a blur. Uh, the juxtaposition of going from uh, being a soldier in the jungle to coming back here to the land of milk and honey and the ever-present knowledge that I had to return to the war at the end of the 30 days didn't make for a great leave. I would ask that you consider my precarious state of mind as somewhat explanatory for my actions over the next several days. Thus it was, I found myself in San Francisco with only a few dollars in my pocket and a one-way ticket to Vietnam leaving the next morning. Like uncounted soldiers before and after me, I decided I was going to try and drink as much alcohol as I possibly could <laughs> before heading off to a rather uncertain fate. The problem was I didn't have any money, I had just a couple of bucks on me. But I did have a rather nice watch, which I was able to pawn for 50 bucks. And I seem to recall going to the Red Cross and uh, getting $15 for a pint of blood. So, having gotten together my grub steak, I proceeded to go from bar to bar in San Francisco. And at one point in the evening, I remember going to the famous revolving bar at the top of the Fairmont Hotel in Knob Hill. Although this choice significantly impacted my meager financial resources, <laughs> it was a wonderful experience to be able to look out on what is just a beautiful city, what many call the Paris of the United States. The next morning finds me at the San Francisco International Airport, certainly disheveled, major hangover, and exactly six cents left in my pocket. I board the plane, oblivious to what's going on around me. As we're flying on the first part of the trip, I noticed there were a lot of vacationers, often undoubtedly looking forward to heading to those beautiful beaches in, in Hawaii. And there were other types on the plane, uh, more government types, military types, on their way to Vietnam, undoubtedly. My own thoughts were quite bleak and dark, knowing that within 24 hours, I was going to be back in Vietnam. So when the plane stopped in Hawaii for all those sun and fun tourists to get off, I decided I'd join them. I got off the plane too. Didn't think about it, just did it. <laughs> so I went to the Pan Am ticket counter and I said, uh, you know, I'd like to take a delay in route. I'm on my way to Vietnam, but uh, I think I'll put it off for a few days. Is that possible? Amazingly. I said, that's no problem at all. <laughs> he said, just let us know when you're ready to go into Vietnam. So, they even got my bag off the plane. So, that was pretty good. Of course, if you've been following me thus far, you're thinking, well, what's he going to do in Hawaii with six cents in his pocket? Well, I was kind of thinking about that myself. And I was sort of sustaining myself by drinking pineapple juice from the free juice dispenser in the airport terminal, compliments of the Dole Pineapple Company. Uh, so, what was I gonna do? Well, I'm looking around, and I noticed there's a lot of GIs, a lot of soldiers passing through the airport continually, streams of them, and most of them in very good spirits, because they're on their way home from Vietnam. So I'd never tried panhandling before, but I thought, you know, what have I got to lose? I need some money. 
So I started to ask people if they had any extra spare change for, uh, you know, and given the way I looked from the previous evening, I had some sort of line like, uh, do you have any spare money for an XGI on the skids? I guess it seemed pretty believable. And so I was able to accumulate quite a sum of money in a short period of time. So I used that money. Airport terminals were really different back then. I was able to get a haircut, a shave, shower, shoe shine, change into a nice set of clothes that I had because they took my luggage off the plane. And I was ready to go. So I then proceeded to hitchhike into downtown Honolulu. And I've never been to Hawaii before, but I've heard of Waikiki Beach. I figured, well, that's got to be the place to go. So I'm walking around, and the next thought I had was, well, I need to bluff my way into a hotel. I need a place to stay. So I picked out what was probably the most expensive, the most luxurious hotel on the Strip. It's called the Royal Hawaiian, a.k.a. the, the Pink Palace. Walked into the hotel. I was pretty well dressed, Natalie attired, I might say, and walked up to the desk clerk and I said, uh, I need a room. But of course, at this point in time, I had to quickly add, but I have a problem. I don't have any money on me. And I had to explain to him that I was on the beginning of a journey of traveling for several months around the world and that I had foolishly left all my money which was in traveler's checks. This was kind of before credit card days, you know. People didn't really have many credit cards. I said all my money was in traveler's checks and it was in a jacket pocket that I put in my suitcase by mistake. And I said, to make matters worse, when I got here from San Francisco this morning, the airline forgot to pull my suitcase. And they tell me the plane was going on to Vietnam of all places and it's going to be several days before I can get my luggage back and I'll have my, my money. Well, amazingly, this worked. I, I, it's just, I can't believe it to this day. I presented picture identification in my real name, and I didn't say anything to dissuade the hotel manager, who at this point in time had joined the clerk, to his mistaken assumption that I was related to the family that makes the Porsche automobile. <laughs> so, they said, Mr. Porsche, sign for everything, and you're good to go. They checked into a beautiful oceanfront room. I was able to sign my name for all my expenses, meals, bar tab, room service. They even had a nice men's clothing store in the lobby. I didn't have any clothes after all because I'm hiding them out at the airport in the locker. I had to get some new threads, too. So I'd like to tell you that I was having the time of my life and feeling great. But in fact, that, of course, wasn't true. I mean... <laughs> living pretty desperately and still very gloomy about ultimately going back to Vietnam. Now, added to that, I have the additional paranoia that at any moment, the hotels are going to come in and arrest me for being a fraud. So after spending three days living large in the lap of luxury, I walked out of that hotel, hitchhiked back to the airport, and got on a plane, and showed up in Vietnam. Now, I wasn't surprised when I got to Vietnam that there wasn't any really negative consequences for showing up a few days late. After all, what were they going to do? Send me to Vietnam? <laughs> <laughs> but towards the end of my 12-month tour of duty, I was called in by the CID. That's the Criminal Investigation Division, sort of like the FBI of the Army. And they wanted to talk to me about a potential charge of financial irresponsibility. <laughs> well, you know now, like I knew then, what that was about. Fortunately, the hotel just wanted their money. 
and I was only too happy to pay. I've been in the jungle for a year, earning money that I couldn't spend, no problem paying the hotel bill, and neither they nor the military had any interest in pursuing the matter any further. So if you can bear with me one last time shift, I'd like to fast forward to 1992. My wife, my 12-year-old daughter, my 9-year-old son, and I, we were able to trade houses with a family in Honolulu and have just a vacation of a lifetime. It was a wonderful time. I have to say my mental attitude was much better this time in, in Hawaii. Of course, I wanted to see the hotel again, make sure that these events that I've been telling you about actually happened. So we went to the Royal Hawaiian, and it was just as luxurious and expensive as I remembered it. And I decided to splurge. Thought we'd have a nice lunch on the beautiful veranda looking out on that gorgeous beach. Had a wonderful meal. End of the meal, the waiter brings the check. I'm reaching into my pocket, and I'm about to pull out a credit card. I turned to my wife, and I said, well, maybe I'll just use cash to be safe. <laughs> Thank you to Al Porsche for sharing that story with us. Fabulous. Um, let me tell you that the time is 7.04. You're listening to WSCALP 106.1 FM, Portsmouth Community Radio, broadcasting from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. This is True Tales Radio. I'm your announcer, Amy Antonucci, and we're going to have... Pat Spaulding, step up to introduce our yeah. next person. Come on up, Pat. Okay. I want to in, uh, introduce John Tilly because he's my neighbor, my new neighbor. And uh, John is a, long, a lifelong Texan who made it to Rye just as soon as he could, so he says. It only took 63 years. I think he wrote this bio before he actually arrived two weeks ago. For the, for the deluge of snow, and um, we've been borrowing each other's snows and rakes and, you know, checking out the plow guys, and it's all about the snow, about the snow, about the snow, yep, all about the snow. <laughs> gotta move it, gotta move it. Actually, John, you said you didn't like snow. I used to like snow. Yeah, well, you are. <laughs> but back to who John is. Irish by ancestry and a lawyer by trade. He's always appreciated a good story. He wrote and edited stories as a journalist before law school and then crafted true stories for juries as a trial lawyer. John learned the value of a storytelling and horse trading from his granddad, even before he kissed the Blarney Stone in Ireland in 2005. The story he has for us tonight is titled, A Day on a Texas Farm. Thank you, Pat, and I appreciated being introduced earlier in the program as a part of the group of locals who are here to tell the story. Uh, I am a local now. I live in Rye, but uh, my new friends here assure me I have not quite lost my Texas accent, so bear with me. My grandfather farmed 40 acres in central Texas from 1943 until 1967. Up until then, he had farmed other men's farm, farms as a sharecropper. But the war had increased demands and prices sufficiently that he could buy his own place. After my birth in 1951, that farm became a second home to me, 
because vacations were very scarce in those days, but visits to grandparents were virtually free other than the 20 cent a gallon gasoline to drive there. My father worked in the oil fields five hours away in West Texas, but we often drove to the farm on Friday nights when his shift was over. One of my earliest memories, and still one of my warmest, was rousing from my sleep in the back seat of the family Ford to the rustle of knee-high weeds dragging under that car as my dad steered off the pavement and onto the dirt lane leading up to my grandparents' house. The car horn honked, and Grandpa would come out of the house buckling up his bib overalls with no shirt on and wiping his sleepy eyes. The sooner he could shuffle us into the house was the sooner he could go back to bed because there was work to do come the dawn. His given name was Clyde Claude, and he married my grandmother, Mabel Maud. <laughs> that, that still makes me chuckle to this day as well. His relationship with me was always warm, but just with a tinge of suspicion. I was not a natural farm boy. I preferred the library to the hay barn. I saw no reason to swelter in the hot August afternoon sun when there was a good book to read in my grandma's den, the only air-conditioned room in the house. Now, although Clyde could read and write and accurately calculate his crop allocations, he was not an educated man, and he generally distrusted what was in books and those who read them. While it was publicly stated that Clyde had finished junior high, the family quietly knew that he only finished third grade before going to work with his own father driving mules and hauling oil, oil field pipes. More than once, Clyde objected to my leisurely afternoon reading and ordered me outside to play in the dust and the heat. You need to be more like Robert, he thundered, referring to my younger cousin, who always had skinned up knees, dirty fingernails, and a general talent for finding trouble almost anywhere. So I would reluctantly put aside Jules Verne or Wilfred McCormick, lace up my high-top Converse shoes, and venture out into the summer sun, silently muttering my displeasure. Still, I tried my best to please my grandfather and often accompanied him and his old rattling farm truck around the countryside or into the neighboring town to fulfill some errand or other. And he taught me things about farm life, such as carefully looking for rattlesnakes in the weeds after hopping out of the pickup truck to open a gate. He warned me to keep a safe distance when walking behind a cow, especially at milking time, to avoid a swift kick in the groin. He stressed never to get between a mother sow and her newborn piglets, and especially to avoid any close encounters with the barnyard rooster, a mean old Chanticleer my grandmother called Strut. His name identified not only his walk, but his attitude as well. Strut had a reputation, and he lived up to it. He was the one and only rooster among a couple dozen hens. He knew his job, he loved his job, and he performed it daily for his admiring uh, hens. But no one came close to him, and no one bothered the many hens in his charge 
without risking a full-fledged rooster attack with those three-inch spurs adorning the back of his legs. Now, on the particular visit of this story, it was very early spring in 1961, which still required a jacket in the crisp mornings. Shortly after breakfast, I zipped up my coat and ventured outside in search of my grandfather, who was supposed to be repairing the garden fence behind the barn. As soon as I closed the door and took two steps, I froze in place. Inside the picket fence and between me and the gate stood Strut, frowning directly at me. <laughs> Thinking only as a nine-year-old boy could think, I decided Strut might flee if I flung a few pebbles at him. I picked up a few pieces of gravel out of the dirt, tossed them in his direction. Rather than retreat, Strut got mad. His neck feathers flared out like a parachute, and Strut started running directly at me. <laughs> he took flight, and wings fully outstretched, he raised up his spurred feet and gored me through my blue jeans, penetrating the skin in my right thigh. My terrified screams brought my grandmother running out the door to shoo away the attacker and to smother me in her arms in her kitchen apron. With a considerable amount of cooing and coaxing and comforting, my tears eventually ebbed. After a band-aid and a piece of chocolate pie, I felt ready to engage the day again. Meanwhile, my grandfather had been briefed on the incident. And while he was generally a kind and gentle man, he sincerely believed grudges should not be harbored and scores should be settled. After lunch, which I'm sure included fried chicken, he served up a proposition. I tell you what, son, he offered. I'll give you three shots with my twenty-two rifle to get even with that old rooster. Now, other than an occasional opportunity supervised by my dad to shoot at tin cans or maybe at a water moccasin down at the river where we often fished, I was hardly conversant with a real rifle. Still, this was a moment to be seized, and I readily agreed. Surely with three shots I could avenge my calamity earlier that day. Now, of course, Clyde knew full well that the idea of three shots was a mere fantasy. One crack of that rifle in Strut's general direction, and he would scamper far out of range before I could ever sight a second shot. But we carefully loaded three bullets into the rifle clip, and I supported the full weight of that rifle in my two hands as we walked around the side of the house. Sure enough, there was Strut, about 20 yards away, slowly walking cocksure through the pasture between the house and the chicken coop. There he is, my grandfather whispered. I nodded grimly and slid up next to the barbed wire fence and balanced the rifle on the middle strand of wire. I clicked off the safety, squinted down the barrel. I aimed the best that I could at Strut's head, and I gently squeezed the trigger. The rifle crack sent skint hens scattering in all directions. Strut jumped 10 feet into the air, did a complete forward somersault, and flopped onto the ground as dead as a rooster could possibly be. 
I stared wide-mouthed at the spectacle in front of me, and then I shouted, I did it, Grandpa! I did it! I spun around and looked up, expecting to see a face beaming with pride and appreciation. <laughs> Instead, I saw a face of absolute stunned disbelief. All my grandfather could mutter was, well, I'll be God-blessed, or similar such words. <laughs> you understand, he never expected me to kill that rooster. Weighing my youth and inexperience against Strut's wiliness, my grandfather considered the risk of losing his one and only prize rooster as virtually nil. Rather, he thought it would be fine folly to give the nine-year-old who liked to read a chance to shoot a gun and scare the wits out of a bad-tempered bird. And then we could all laugh about it and call it even. My last memory of that day is my grandfather picking up the carcass of his rooster and putting it into the back of his old pickup truck to discard on some empty country dirt road. Tough old roosters were not destined for the frying pan, especially one with the first name. <laughs> then my grandpa set out in search of a new rooster. Because without a rooster, there are no little chicks hatched on a Texas farm in the springtime. <laughs> Thank you, John. So, next up we have Roberta Swagel. Previously a lifelong resident of New York, she retired in 2012 and moved to Kittery, Maine to be near family. She began writing light verse, is that right? Yeah, okay. After joining a writing group at the local cancer support center and has continued her writing since then. Roberta lives with a 10-year-old overweight and under-exercised cat that has too much time I'm sorry, that has too much time on its paws and a distinct superiority complex. She's going to share a poem tonight, her way of storytelling, not about her cat, but about the risks of food consumption. <laughs> The poem is dedicated to all of you who've just realized that you will have to don shorts in a mere four months, believe it or not. It is titled, To Diet or Not to Diet. Come on up, Roberta. I, will. I am a rhymer, not a poet, and um, that's a little... Too prestigious for me. And this is my story in rhyme. A muffin on the counter once called me by my name. It said it didn't matter that I shouldn't be ashamed. Ours would be a perfect pairing. If I made a cup of tea, together, kismet. Truly meant to be. Once, when I was walking down the street... A fat burrito whispered, Psst, come over here and be with me. I'm stuffed and hot and crisp. A chocolate mousse, a decadent one, with a cherry atop its form, enticed me with these tempting words. I'm sweet and lush and warm. 
<laughs> Still gets me. It seems that sugar talks to me when I'm alone or bored or weak. Please tell me why in this fine world don't veggies ever speak? <laughs> to Newcastle, New Hampshire, and began writing. Her memoir, Toots, will come out this fall. She grew up in the South and moved to New York, where she did interviewing on cable TV and then negotiating for 26 years. Anyone know what that is? Hands? No. Yeah, another story? Can we get, anyway. Um, an interesting fact that you probably don't know about Emily is that she had a baton twirling scholarship to the University of Miami. And she and Pat are going to connect and share some moves later, right, Pat? I see a baton here. Yes. So this is her first foray, foray into storytelling, and her story is titled From the Turnip Truck into the Traffic. So how many of you are from a small town? All right. For those of you who are, this story is especially for you. When I left my little small town in Auburn, Alabama, I decided to go straight to New York City. And I was going to get a job, and I was going to work maybe for an interior decorator. But this, you have to know, was before cell phones. So, I, my, uh, I forgot to tell you that my car, my Ford, was the color of a lima bean, a very pale lima bean. So when I got to New York, I parked the lima bean, and I started walking down the sidewalk looking for a phone booth. And I finally found one, and I went in, and I was going to call an employment agency in, and get a phone book. But, you know, a phone booth is really tiny, and I went in, and there was no phone book in there. There was just this big shelf with things hanging down. So I thought, well, I'll just go in that jewelry store over there, and I will get uh, asked for their phone book. So I walked up the steps, and I said to the man in the store, but first of all, I looked, and I thought, you know, this New York jewelry store looks just like the ones in Alabama, but the diamonds were 10 times bigger, at least 10 times bigger. So I said to the man behind the counter, could I borrow y'all's phone book? And he said, what did you say? And I said, could I borrow y'all's phone book? He said, he pointed to the booth and he said, under the shelf in the booth, did you look? And I said, yeah, I looked, but it wasn't there. Someone must have stole it. He said, 
Lady, where you from, Mars? I got a store full of customers. But he went out and he went into the booth that I had just been in and I followed him. And he said to me, what burrow, lady? What's a burrow? He said, geez, where are you from, Mars? Don't you know where you want to go? Don't you know? And he said, Burrow, Brooklyn, Bronx, Queens. Where do you want to go, lady? I said, right here. And I pointed to the ground. <laughs> so he reached over and he pulled up part of the shelf. And it was a phone book and it said Manhattan on it. And I thought, my goodness, I've only been here about two hours. And I've already learned about phone books and burrows. This is really special. <laughs> so... He went, just was disgusted, and he went right back into the store, muttering under his breath. And I thought, wow, I have just met a real New Yorker, and he talks fast and funny. And he was thinking, I just met a real hick. She doesn't even know where she is, and she doesn't even know how to find a phone book. So the next day... I went to an employment agency called Kelly Girl. Have any of you ever heard of Kelly sure. Girl? Oh, yeah. oh, the women are all shaking their hands, yes. yes. And I remember it was at 43rd Street and 5th Avenue, right in the middle of all of the traffic. And I walked up to the second floor, and this Miss Thompson chirped at me, just like one of my chickens back home. Are you here for your typing test? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she took me into this little tiny room. It had huge typewriters on these two scruffy tables, and the chairs were all scuzzy. And so she said, now, when you're ready, I'll come back and give you your test. Well, you need to know that in those days, only corporations had electric typewriters. Everybody else had a manual. We just called it an Underwood. And you would type, and then the bell would ring, ding, and you'd push the carriage back to a clean spot. That's what I knew. So I sat down, and I put my hands on the typewriter, and I mashed down as hard as I could. And do you know what happened? Nothing. Nothing at all. So then I thought, well, I'll just do like I'm playing the piano, and I smashed my fingers down. And you know what happened? Nothing. So then I thought, well, I'll just rub my hand around the side of the back of the typewriter. Nothing happened. Now I'm thinking, Miss Thompson is going to come back in here, and nothing will have happened in here either. And I would be just standing there, and that minute the door opened. But it wasn't Miss Thompson. It was another potential secretary. She had, she was tall, and she had teased up hair. You remember the beehive hairdos? Mm -hmm. Well. That made her even taller. And she was chewing gum. She had a mouthful of gum. And every now and then she'd go. <laughs> so I thought, here's my chance. I am saved. And I said, excuse me, but could you tell me how this thing works? How do, how do I turn it on? And she said, there's a switch under the right side and you just pull it toward you. She smacked her gum again. 
oh, I was saved. And I started typing, and the words just came out. And when Miss Thompson came back, she said, that is wonderful. You type 65 words a minute. And she said, well, who would you like, you know, to get a job with? I'll uh, make an appointment. And I said, you know, when I was in the dentist's office back home, I read about this interior decorator. That's kind of a New York-style job. And so he, uh, I read about him in the glossy magazines, and I'd really like to work for him. And she said, well, that is really peculiar. Now, this sounds like it's not real, but it is. She said, I actually can get an appointment for you. He's looking for a secretary. And so the next day, I went to see Billy Baldwin. Now, I, was, I had his address written on a little piece of paper that I'd torn off a, a napkin or something. And so I got, I was looking for a, maybe a penthouse or something in a big, tall skyscraper. But there was just this little house there, and it had about three or four floors. And I went in, and there was this sweet little man, a little dumpling of a man, and he was sitting in an elevator, and he was on a little round metal stool. And he said, hi, my name is Clarence. And I said, well, hi, Clarence. I'm here to see Billy Baldwin. And he said, well, I'll take you right up. And I said, well, thank you very much. But then I got in the elevator. You know how tiny little elevators are. And I'm standing there. And he's sitting there. And nothing is happening. So he starts to ask me questions. He says, well, where are you from? People always ask me that with my accent. Where are you from? And then he said, where did you go to school? I thought he meant college, probably. And then he said, um... Now, um, and there was a little bit of a silence. Well, I hate silence. Don't you hate silence? I thought I should fill it up. So I said, well, tell me, Clarence, uh, is this a good place to work? And he nodded and he smiled. And then I thought, wait a minute. I looked at my watch, and it was time for my appointment. And here I was, standing here talking to Clarence. And I said, Clarence, shouldn't I go up? Isn't Billy going to be annoyed if I'm late? He said, okay, I'll take you up. So he closed his metal gate, and then he closed this accordion door, and he moved this, this wooden handle over to the right. And then we went, took two seconds. We were right at the top, the fourth floor, that is. And the doors opened, and there was this beautiful living room. It was like the sunrise, pale colors. And I thought, wow, this is really something. And Clarence went in to talk to Billy, and a few minutes later, the door opened, and here came a, somebody who looked just like Billy Baldwin's picture. And he came floating out, and he said, Darling, Clarence tells me that I should hire you. And I was, Clarence? Clarence was the interviewer. <laughs> I should have been nicer. <laughs> but anyway, I said, Clarence? And he said, and then Billy said, but, you know, he said, I have these wonderful decorating ideas. And he said, they come like bubbles in the air. And then, poof, they're gone. So you have to take perfect shorthand. And I thought, you know, I went to the Lutheran church in Alabama, and I learned to tell the truth. So I told the truth. I don't take perfect shorthand. But I can type really fast. Well... Can you guess? I didn't get the job. And I went back in the elevator 
And I said, Clarence, thank you so much. That was so nice of you to recommend me. And he said, you're going to be just fine. He said, I know you will. And I went outside, and the day was dark and dull. And I looked up at the sky, and it was gray. And I looked at the buildings, and they were gray. And I was mostly looking down at the ground, and you know what? It was gray. And there were these pigeons flying all around, and you know what color they were? Gray. gray. They were gray. So I went down the steps, and I thought, my decision to come to New York was really dumb. In fact, it was dumb as dirt. But here I was in New York, and somebody had said Park Avenue was really nice. So I went and walked down Park Avenue for about three blocks. And I thought, wait a minute. Here I am. I've always wanted to come to New York. And here I am. I'm finally here. Living my dream of dreams. It's going to be okay. And you know, about two weeks later, I got a job. And it was with an industrial design firm. They were called Raymond Lowy, William Snaith. Maybe you've heard of them. But just to refresh your memory, they designed the Lucky Strike Pack, and they did the Coke bottle, and they designed the Studebaker, the car that looked like it was going, going both ways at the same time. And the designers would come in now and then and say, which one of these designs do you think looks good? And I'd say, go, I like that one. And I'd say, I like that one too. And I thought, I just love to come to work. And I may have fallen off of a turnip truck, but here I was, playing in the middle of the traffic. <laughs> All right, so Dr. Linda Rhodes is next. She is a large animal veterinarian who always wanted to take care of cows. She lives in Durham, New Hampshire, where she moved after living in New Jersey for 25 years. Linda started her career as a dairy cattle veterinarian in the late 1970s and currently works for a company developing new medicines for animals. She's a serial entrepreneur, having started two successful companies, one of which is now public. Currently, she is working on a memoir about her time taking care of cows in Utah and Idaho. Linda will describe to us tonight the trials and tribulations of landing her first job in How I Found My First Cow Doctor Job. <laughs> All right. Well, we've, we've had a little bit of a discussion about chickens and pigs and a few interesting farm animals, so I think this story will fit right in. Um, so I want to tell you about how I found my first job uh, taking care of cows. And it starts with uh, the realization when I went to veterinary school that I really always wanted to take care of cows. Um, and uh, when I was about ready to graduate was the time when all of my classmates and I began to look for jobs. So this was January, February of 1978. 
And at that time, there were very few women veterinarians, and there were even fewer women veterinarians who took care of large animals. Um, so the way you found a job when you were uh, about to graduate from vet school is you looked in the back of the veterinary journals, and there were all the job listings and for various parts of the country for different kinds of jobs. And you picked out the area where you wanted to work. And in my case, it was upstate New York, where there were a lot of the big dairies. Uh, and my husband lived in upstate New York at the time, so that's where I wanted to be. And then you called up the veterinarians, and they invited you up to their practice. But you didn't go and sit across from a desk and have a chat. You actually did work. So you would show up in your full green coveralls, your rubber boots, put your stethoscope around your neck, and you'd climb into the truck, and you'd go do some real work on the farm. So the first interview I had was with a large animal practitioner, and uh, the first call was we had to castrate 100 pigs. So, you know, that was kind of the test. You get out of the truck, you have your instruments, you go to the barn, you, you know, you go through the manure and blood and guts and you castrate the pigs and, and then go on to the next call. So the next call would be something like delivering a calf or there would be a cow with a sore foot that you'd have to rope up and tie up and dig out the abscess while she was, you know, trying to kick you. Uh, maybe the next call would be a bunch of goats that all had pneumonia, and you'd have to treat them all, with, but run around and catch them all and, and give them an injection of antibiotics. That was your interview. And obviously you'd be working with the veterinarian, and he'd be looking at what you were doing and how you were doing it. At the end of the day, you'd come back to the office and you know, hose off your rubber boots and peel off your manure-covered coveralls and you know, shake his hand and get back in, the, in, in your car and drive home. So that was my first interview, and I thought I did pretty well, and I think probably he thought I did pretty well, but I didn't get called back. So a couple weeks later, I looked up another one, I got another call, come out, do another interview, and on that interview, we I can't remember exactly what we did, but it was the same type of thing. It was treating cows with mastitis and treating sick pigs and, you know, making a farm call for a bunch of sheep that had, you know, skin infections and on and on. But it was your traditional large animal vet kind of work get back in, in the truck, talk to the veterinarian, you know, how was it going, what'd you think, and, you know, basically I'd get the feedback, you're doing great, you know, you clearly know what you're doing, but I didn't get called back. So I had more than 10 interviews like this, mostly in upstate New York, and, you know, I heard a little feedback from the people I was interviewing with, and they would say things like, well, you know, my wife isn't really comfortable with me hiring a woman for this position. Or they would say, you know, you seem to kind of know what you're doing, but, you know, this job is really rough and tumble, and women just can't do it. You know, it's just too much physical work. Um, or they'd say, well, you know, you're married, and you're probably just going to have some kids, and, you know, I, I don't want to bring you into the practice and just have you leave after a year or so. You know, you know, basically, they said stuff that if they said it today would be illegal. But back then, you know, that was considered okay. And I got pretty discouraged. Meanwhile, my friends and colleagues in vet school were all getting jobs because, you know, when you're a graduate veterinarian, you, you get a job, right? So all my classmates had jobs. And it was May, and we were graduating, and um, I was getting pretty discouraged. And um, I went on another interview and didn't get a call back. And, and we graduated, and every single one of my classmates had a job except me. So my parents lived in California, and I thought, well, you know, California, maybe they'll be more liberal out there. And so I flew out to California, and I took the California boards and passed and um, stayed with my parents. And I called up a couple of the vets who take care of the cows in the Central Valley of California. 
And they were even worse, much worse. They were just like, you don't, no, don't even come in the truck with us. You, women cannot do this kind of work. It's too hard. Just go away, little girl, and don't bother us. So my student loans are coming due, and I just, you know, I can't get started in my professional career. And I'm feeling pretty low because I'm, you know, living with my parents. I have thousands of dollars of student loans. I have no job. All my classmates are gainfully employed. And I just can't, I can't do what I want to do. So my dad was a cat lover and he took his cat in for her annual vaccinations and happened to chat with the vet about my predicament. And the vet said, you know, I've got an opening in my practice. Why don't you have her come down and talk to me? So he came home and he told me, and, you know, I was looking at my student loan bills and I was thinking, here I am living with my parents. And so I said, okay, I'll go talk to him. So I go down to this hospital in Pasadena, California, and I walk in and the hospital's beautiful. You know, it's gleaming, clean. Everybody's got their little white coats on and there's little Fufu with her little pink bow around her neck and this little Siamese kitty and every, you know, this, this is, this is a whole different world. But I walk into the vet, and he's a really nice guy, and he's clearly busy, and he's, he offered me a job on the spot. So I said yes, because I needed a job. And I started working there. And I'd show up to work every morning with my, put on my little white coat and take care of little Fufu and little Fifi, and you know, it's, everything is clean and nice, and I'm, and I'm miserable. I'm living with my parents. I'm not doing what I wanted to do, and I just can't get started on my career, what I really want to be doing. And I get this call from a friend of mine who lives in Utah, and she works at Utah State University in Logan, Utah. And she said, you remember that internship that they have here in the animal science department? Because I'd actually applied for that internship way back in January, um, and I'd never heard back. And she said, you know, they have an internship here. And I said, yeah, but that's that's for a new graduate, and that position's been filled. And she said, yeah, they did hire a big strapping blonde Mormon guy, and he came in, and he was taking care of the cows, and he got kicked by a cow last week and broke both his legs, and he's out for the count. Hmm. And I thought, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided that because it was, they turned me down, you know, one time, I'd obviously hadn't considered my application. Instead of trying to call, I would just go there. So I got in the car and drove a thousand miles across the desert, over the mountains, to Logan, Utah, and I showed up at the door of this guy, the hiring veterinarian. His name was Dr. Jay Call. Knocked on his door and I said, I'm here to apply for the internship. And he kind of like was very taken aback. Very nice guy, very friendly. He said, what do you mean? And I said, well, I heard that your position is open. And he said, yeah, it is. And he said, well, you know, it's lunchtime. Why don't we go and have lunch? So we went to the, down to the university cafeteria. We had a really nice lunch, and he asked me about my husband and did I have any kids and where my parents were and where I'd grown up and didn't ask me anything about veterinary medicine. And it seemed like a really nice guy. We had a really nice chat. And I, I figured, you know, after lunch, I'll put the coveralls on. We'll get in the truck. We'll go out and take care of the cows. But after we kind of finished lunch, he said, you know, I think you should meet the dean. So he said, let's just go down the hall here and see if the dean is in. We knock on the dean's door. The dean comes out. Dr. Call says, you know, Dr. Van Campen, this is Linda Rhodes. She's here to apply for the internship. And he did this, like, triple take. And there was a long moment of silence. And Dean Van Campen said, um, you know, this job, it, you, you have to get dirty. 
And I said, yeah, I kind of know what being a large animal vet that you, you do get dirty. And there was a long, uncomfortable silence. And then he said, uh, well, can you worm a horse? And I said, yeah, I, I could worm a horse. You know, worm, worming a horse is like veterinary medicine 101. It's like what you learn when you're a freshman. You know, he just, he just was flabbergasted. And they, he and Dr. Call kind of looked at each other, and they kind of shrugged. And um, he shook my hand and said, well, thanks for coming, and really nice to meet you. And we went back to Dr. Call's office. I kept expecting now we're going to go in the truck, right? And, you know, I'd driven 1,000 miles. And Dr. Call just shook my hand and said, well, thanks for coming by, and really appreciate you coming by. And I got in my car and I drove all the way back to California. Didn't hear a peep. Did not hear a peep. And I was just like, okay, what's happening? You know, I'm living with my parents. My husband's 3,000 miles away. You know, I'm working in this small animal practice, and this is it. This is my last hope. And so finally, after a couple of weeks, I, my, Nancy, my friend at Utah State, calls me, and she said, they still haven't filled that position yet. You should call them. And I said, well, you know, they should call me. And no, no, you should call them. You should call them. So I called Dr. Call, and I said, you know, I'm still interested. And he said, oh, my God, you know, we have tried everything. We have re-advertised the position, and nobody's applied because it's a position only for new graduates. And all the new graduates have jobs. It's, you know, you graduated in May. It's, it's October. And so we, we can't get any new graduates to apply. And he said, I knew this guy up at Washington State, and he knew this young man that wasn't happy in his first job and maybe would come. And we talked. We tried to talk him into it, but we couldn't get him to come down here. His wife didn't want to move to Logan. And he said, and I've been up nights doing emergencies, which the intern should be doing, and my wife is getting on my case, and I hate going out at night and delivering cows. And, you know, we're just really desperate. <laughs> <laughs> So I just, like, held my breath, and he said, um, so I guess we're just going to have to give you a shot. <laughs> and I said, when do I start? <laughs> Rousing endorsement he made of you there. Wow. <laughs> Next, I'd like to introduce to you Pat Spaulding of Rye, New Hampshire. She's a writer and storyteller who tells stories for grown-ups. She does her best to craft personal tales of love, loss, and laughter into programs of stand-up storytelling. For over 30 years, Pat made, her career, made a career of puppetry, touring the country with her company, Hey Penny Theater. But in 2008, she traded in the puppets for a twirling baton so that she could join the leftist marching band and become an activist majorette storyteller. Who wouldn't want to be that? In addition to her twirling, writing, and storytelling, Pat is the MC of this Very True Tales radio program. Yes, a little role reversal tonight. tonight. <laughs> um, she had intended to, to tell a story about a bicycle trip she'd taken with her, with her brother in 1968. But dealing with home ownership under this deluge of snow we've had the last few weeks prompted her to instead choose to tell you this, snow removal, nice work. <laughs> so it was early April 1997. 
Does anybody remember the April Fool's Day blizzard of 1997? It's no. Yes. Yes, you do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that blizzard dropped about three feet of heavy, wet snow on top of what was left not melted in March. And uh, my 85-year-old dad, no, I guess he was 80 at that time, had managed, without letting me know about it, to climb on his roof to shovel and rake all of the snow off the roof of his house and his barn. He wasn't living close by at the time, and um, he figured, well, hey, he could do it. And he's a Yankee. No Yankee's going to pay somebody to do something that they can do. So he took the risk. He got through it without me knowing all was well. But a few days after that, he called to say that uh, he was headed up to the cabin to check the roof there. So then he blew his cover. So he mentioned that he'd already shoveled his legs. I said, well, wait a minute, Dad. You, <laughs> you got through shoveling your roof and the barn roof, and now you're going to go to the cabin all by yourself? No, you can't do that. Um, it's too far away. The cabin is about, well, it's, it's just this little, little camp that's on a, a lake, and uh, it's a, on about a half acre of private property surrounded by hundreds of lake acres of conservation land. There's no road to it. So you get there either by foot, by boat, or if it's in the winter, you get there on cross-country skis. And that, of course, was Dad's plan. He was going to ski in, check the roof. <laughs> Why not? So I said, it's not safe, Dad. You can't go there by yourself. I'm going with you. He said, nah, I'll be all right. Nah, nah. But I insisted. And after a little back and forth arguing, he said, all right, if it makes you feel better, I guess you can come along. So off we go. Dad's breaking trail on his skis through the woods. Snow is really wet, heavy, deep. I figured he must be getting tired. So I say, hey, Dad, why don't you let me break trail for a while? I can do it. I know you can do it, Dad, but I'm here, so why not let me do some of the work? Well, all right. So he steps aside, and I skid past him. And he started following in my tracks, and all went well for about two minutes until the tips of my skis slid underneath the snow to snag on a root, which abruptly hurled me forward into a splat faceplant. I was just picking up my head when my backpack flipped up behind me to knock me in the back of the head and oh, no. double splat, <laughs> whammy smack down. Well, this time when I came up, my glasses were all loaded with snow and I was spitting it out of my mouth and wiping it off my face. And my father was laughing <laughs> hard. What's so funny, Dad? <laughs> nice work, he says. <laughs> and then he scooted past me to continue breaking trail. That was my dad. Now, in keeping with the Yankee tradition of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. A few years back before this little venture that we had to the cabin, the roof started leaking. So dad nailed a metal roof over the shingles of the side of the roof that was leaking. Of course, the other side wasn't leaking yet. Shingles might have been 70 plus years old, but they were still holding up. So he just let those be. 
That was the year. Then uh, 1997, the roof was buried in over three feet of snow. I had thought that was a lot of snow until this year when I was <laughs> scraping four feet of snow off my back garage. But unlike my dad, I asked for help. So back to the cabin. The snow is banked up against the outer wall to cover the tops of the window. We don't have to uh, climb ladders because we can just climb on top of the snow banks and onto the roof, which is what we did. Dad's carrying shovels, hands me one, and uh, he heads off to the peak of the roof, tells me to watch my footing. He climbs up the side of the metal roof because that was the easiest access, and then he straddles the, the peak, anchoring one foot solidly on the asphalt shingle side, which is a detail that I failed to notice at the time. <laughs> so I climb up a ways. It's a beautiful day. The sun's beating down, and a slick of water's glistening over the surface of the lake, and there's big puffy white clouds and a blue sky and light darting all around. And I say, wow, this is a beautiful view from up here. Dad says, well, you better pay less attention to the view and more attention to what you're doing. And I said, yeah, but Dad, look at the sparkles. The light, it's just dancing on the lake. It's so pretty. He says, climb up here. Dig from the top, not the bottom. Look, what? And just as I turned to ask him, an avalanche of snow loosens to slide down from the top of the metal roof, catch me, knock me off my feet, onto my shovel. I ride my shovel like a sled. <laughs> it launches me into the air, off the roof. And for a moment, a brief moment, I feel the thrill of being Harry Potter. <laughs> Until, kaploosh, I land in a snowbank. So, I'm buried up to my waist, but otherwise unscathed just laughing like wow wow did you see that wow this is amazing what just happened and dad apparently been looking the other way and all he saw was the end result the top half of me sticking out of the snow at the bottom of the roof yes you okay i said yeah yeah i'm fine <laughs> and i just keep laughing well what's so funny everything I just rode off the roof like a ski jump, sailed through the air on my shovel to land in this snowbank. This is the second stupid, life-threatening thing that's happened to me today because I was trying to prevent some stupid, life-threatening thing from happening to you. Well, I can see that, Dad. And he looks down at me, still stuck in the snowbank. Pulls on his beard, assesses the situation, gives a good look to the metal roof behind me, now cleared completely of snow, and says, Well, nice work. <laughs> <laughs> and those are the words that I would like to leave you with tonight, my friends. After all of our snow plowing, blowing, shoveling, raking, roof clearing, ice chopping over the last couple of weeks, let me congratulate you and all your efforts to deal with it. Like my father congratulated me and just say, nice work.
Thank you so much to all of our wonderful storytellers tonight and to our studio audience for really being a part of things. True Tales Radio will be back on March 31st with the theme of Breaking the Mold and Inspiration. We have three slots open at this time and need sign-ups finished by March 16th. So those three storytellers, wherever you are, email us at truetales at wscafm.org for details. Also, you can find info at our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash truetalesradio. And while you're there, please like us and check out the rest of our 2015 themes. Many thanks to our underwriters for tonight's program. Jan Hansen, who believes in the unique value of having an independent community radio station here in the Seacoast. And Pat Spaulding, who believes in stories for grown-ups and True Tales Radio, and who wants to know, hey, what's your story? A few more thank yous to our MC, Pat Spaulding. Our set manager, Jean Gagney. Our pr promotional assistant and... Photographer Steve Koval. And of course, our producer John Lovering.